Okay, everybody, we're now going to begin uh, a, a warm... Uh, can you all hear me back there? Okay, I'm now going to introduce uh, Professor Rosenblatt. Rod uh, uh, is a uh, member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He is a pastor. If I can ask you all to, uh, to listen now, that'd be great. Arad is a pastor in the Missouri Linod uh, <laughs> uh, Church, and uh, he has been with us all week. He is a member with me and Gerald Bray, also of the advent of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which is one of the most uh, pleasurable boards I'm able to sit on. And uh, he teaches at Concordia University, which is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod University in uh, Irvine, California. He is the hardest man to get to come anywhere short of uh, a particular English bishop named James Jones, uh, who also finally came. Uh, and he's been with us all weekend. Rod uh, wrote his PhD. Uh, at uh, the University of Strasbourg, so he has that strong European Reformation uh, uh, context to his thought. He is a specialist especially in the relationship between psychological ruminations on fatherhood and sonship as they relate to the gospel as rediscovered by the Lutheran Reformation, which I would myself say is the Christian gospel. So he will now speak to us for a certain period of time, and then we will have discussion, uh, and we'll end at the normal time. Now, just a minute while I uh, 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 mic him up. You're about as adept at this as I. Oh, you're on. <laughs> you're all set. Thanks, Paul. Take this along. I must say, this is an amazing Episcopal parish. It really is. I, credit to Paul and to your staff and to the fellows and women who serve here. This is an amazing parish. Uh, just sitting through your service this morning, I mean, you have, would have to be blind to miss what's going on at this place. God bless you. The, the liberals must hate you. <laughs> A sure mark of distinction. <laughs> I thank you for the invitation. Uh, the other day we were doing some uh, theology together, and I was leaning on a man whom you would not expect a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod man to lean on, St. Thomas Aquinas, in uh, doing a defense that every, every good father is a clue as to what God is like to his child, and especially to sons. Um, this morning I'd like to read a portion of a poem to you that was authored by the great Scottish storyteller George MacDonald. Now it's a little flowery for my Danish blood, but uh, it was written in the 19th century and things tended to be a tad flowery then. But I think you'll get, as you hear it, why I'm using it. Title is to my father. Take of the first fruits, father of thy care, wrapped in the fresh leaves of my gratitude, late waked for early gifts ill understood, claiming in all my harvests rightful share, whether with song that mounts the joyful air I praise my God, or in yet deeper mood sit dumb because I know a speechless good. 
needing no voice but all the soul for prayer. Thou hast been faithful to my highest need, and I, thy debtor ever, evermore, shall never feel the burden sore. Yet most I thank thee, not for any deed, but for the sense thy living self did breed, that fatherhood is at the great world's core. Now, if you had a good one, you know exactly what I mean. Um, and I am convinced, and argued the other day, you can pick up the tapes if you're, in, if you're interested, the theology of the Reformers locks with this. My co-host on the White Horse Inn, the Calvinist's Calvinist, Mike Horton, said to me one time, Rob, do you believe that there is an analogia entis? That's Latin for, do you believe there are any analogies on this earth for God? And I said, there are millions of them. And he sort of went like this. Because uh, in Bardian circles, there aren't any. And um, I said, every single good father on earth is an analogy. Every single one. Uh, I happen to have grown up with a father like that, and I found out in that just how much need there is in our day, in our culture, for fathers, and we think there isn't. It's killing us. It's absolutely killing us. 87% of those in prison grew up in fatherless homes. Now, why we don't get that, I don't know. And by it, I don't mean that he is the one who will back up with a stronger bicep what mom says earlier when she says, just wait till your father gets home. I don't mean that. Father's presence is not primarily one of power. It's primarily one of grace. Luther said that the calling of a father was to be a priest in his own household. Now, some of you sons might recognize this. Um, uh, it certainly was my story. I can't speak for daughters, but I know as a son, I was forever in trouble with my mother. There wasn't a time I think I wasn't in trouble with my mother. And somehow, somehow he worked it so that she didn't feel alienated and he was my deliverer. Over and over and over and over and over. For every son who has that, when the gospel story is told, he says, I recognize that. I recognize that. That's familiar. When the promises are read, as they were this morning, when the promises are read that to total rebellion, total sinfulness, hatred of our Creator, as low as you can go, comes the message that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God evidences his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The message of the New Testament is a message of our total hatred of our Creator and his total rescue of us anyway, without even asking our permission to do it. Every son who had a father who was sort of like that has extra help in recognizing that. Then I've realized through the years, as other sons have responded, I've, as I've just told stories about my physician dad, that even if somebody didn't have a father, his father was utterly alcoholic or utterly not there or utterly whatever, that there still is healing that goes on even late 
from stories of ones who weren't. If you have a good one, tell people. Tell the stories. There's healing that goes on in just hearing about, because the child knows it was supposed to be something like that. He doesn't know how. It's long ago and far away. But he knows somehow, somehow, it was supposed to be like that. And it was. That child is right. It was supposed to be like that. That's how it was supposed to be. Even in a fallen world, it was supposed to be like that. Um, I asked people in many of these uh, gatherings if they understand why non-Christians read the Lord of the Rings the way Christians read scripture. I have uh, atheist friends who read the, the whole trilogy every year and have since it came out in 1967. And so I asked them why they do that. Many of them don't really realize why they're doing it. I think I know. Tolkien, as member of the Inklings along with C.S. Lewis, was telling the story again, the great story. And he was doing it in a rather hidden way. What he said in an epilogue to his essay entitled On Fairy Stories was this. If I can get my readers to want to live in the Shire, they are then ready to read the Gospel of John where this really happened once. Let me quote that, if I can get my computer to behave itself here for just a few seconds. The essay is called On Fairy Stories, and Tolkien was considered one of the greatest experts in the Western world on fairy stories. And he was convinced that the gospel was the greatest fairy story of all time, only this one was true. Fathers are like that. They make the unbelievable true. This is Tolkien. This joy, which I have selected as the mark of the true fairy story, or as the seal upon it, merits more consideration. Probably every writer making a secondary world, a fantasy, every sub-creator wishes in some measure to be a real maker, or hopes that he's drawing on reality, hopes that the peculiar quality of this secondary world, if not all the details, are derived from reality or are flowing into it. If he indeed achieves a quality that can be fairly described by the dictionary definition, inner consistency of reality, it is difficult to conceive how this can be if the work does not in some way partake of reality. The peculiar quality of the joy in successful fantasy can thus be explained as a sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth. It is not only a consolation for the sorrow of this world, but a satisfaction and an answer to that question, is it true? The answer to this question that I gave at first was quite rightly, if you've built your little world well, yes, it's true in that world. That's enough for the artist, or the artist part of the artist. But in the eucatastrophe, he coined that word, it means the turn in a fairy tale when things are absolutely without hope, and a turn comes that's so good that it almost makes you cry. It's too good to be true. We see in a brief vision that the answer may be the greater. It may be a far-off gleam or echo of the evangelium of the real world. The use of this world gives a hint of my epilogue. It is a serious and dangerous matter. It is presumptuous of me to touch upon such a theme, but if by grace what I say has any respect, any validity, it is, of course, only one facet of a truth incalculably rich, finite only because the capacity of man for whom this was done is finite. 
Now let me see if I can find the section that I especially want to read. It's short. Um, I would venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction, it has long been my feeling, a joyous feeling, that God redeemed the corrupt making creatures, men, in a way fitting to this aspect as to others of our strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance, and among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable catastrophe. But this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and a an aspiration of sub-creation has risen to the order of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. His resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. It is not difficult to imagine the peculiar excitement and joy that one would feel if any specially beautiful fairy story were found to be primarily true. It's narrative to be history without thereby necessarily losing the mythical or allegorical significance that it had possessed. It is not difficult, for one is not called upon to try and conceive anything of a quality unknown. The joy would have exactly the same quality, if not the same degree, as the joy which the turn in a fairy story gives. Such joy has the very taste of primary truth. Otherwise, its name would not be joy. It looks forward uh, or backward, the direction in this regard is unimportant, to the great eucatastrophe. The Christian joy, the Gloria, is of the same kind, but it is preeminently, infinitely, if our capacity were not finite, high, and joyous. This, but this story is supreme, and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. Every father who does for his children the normal and the good is a picture of that, and Tolkien knew it. Um, I have in my house on Saturday nights so many young men I almost can't even count them anymore, and I was telling the story earlier. I hadn't realized till Robert Bly told me in a Bill Moyers interview that older men have the key in many ways to those young men's lives. They need the older men to bless them and what they're doing, and they need it like air, and I didn't know it. Mothers can do a lot of things. That's one that they can't. The older men are needed by the younger men in ways that I never even imagined. And if that isn't close to the gospel story, free blessing on their lives and where they want to go and what they want to do, I don't know what is. For the stories of my father, which I love to tell, you can get the tape series uh, from earlier. I told the guys outwardly, I'm going to try and weave a spell over this room. I'm going to tell you stories about my dad, and I'm going to try and weave a spell. I don't know if that worked, but that was the intent. 
All right, uh, we don't have too much time, so uh, if you want to... spontaneously, the master of the one-liner, and I'm going to ask him a question first and then invite you to reflect on this. Can you hear me properly here? Uh, uh, tie in, why do you say the theology of the reformers? Why is the theology of the Reformation uh, different from just generic Christianity? And then tie that into a father's love. Okay. In the theology of the reformers, it was sort of a return to St. Paul in a way that... Uh, that was remarkable after, after a lot of uh, nothing since St. Augustine. In returning to St. Paul, they discovered a doctrine of sin in the New Testament that was really deep uh, and in which we, we, we had no Archimedean point as sinners where we could plant the lever to pry the gate of heaven open. We have nothing going for us. Um, no matter where you slice us, our emotions, our will, our brain, our whatever, our body. Uh, Romans 3 reads as if it is all without hope and we cannot do anything to help save ourselves. I had a mathematics friend of mine, kind of a renaissance professor who knows more about my field than I do, asked me one day, what do you think is the greatest doctrine of the Reformation? And I said, well, I would, I would immediately answer justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ's merit alone. He said, I think it's the doctrine of total depravity. And I think he may be right. Without that as the background, the cross is not total rescue. Unless it's total inability and total death, you don't have a savior, you've got a swimming coach, you know, <laughs> who comes alongside of you at the YMCA and says, keep your legs straight and kick harder. <laughs> hmm? In the Reformation, with the discovery of the total inability of the sinner to do anything back toward his creator, that we actually resent him and hate him and hate his plan and his son, you don't really have the backdrop that's needed for the doctrine of the cross. I tell my students, imagine you're going on the Northern Pacific Railway through the Rockies in Montana. If the computer system is working the right way, certain uh, switches are throwing up ahead of you so that you don't meet the uh, westward bound with both of you doing 90. That's if the switches are working right. And in the same way, though it doesn't look like it, when we're talking about the boring doctrine of sin, certain switches are throwing up ahead where we can't see them that have to do with the cross. With the reformer's doctrine of the total hatred of the sinner toward his creator, and his inability to do anything to move back in that direction, you've got a doctrine of the cross where God himself utterly saves us and brings us from death to life again, and we get no credit for it, whatever, not even for believing in Jesus. Wow. Um, thank, thank you. That's a, that's a, that's a start. Uh, uh, now, um, I'll, I'll handle the microphone at this point, I think, if you don't mind, Jim. Uh, Jerry? Uh, is there a... Uh, a corollary between the, the dearth of the kind of <clears throat> wise male bonding that you've been describing and the, and the demonstrably statistical dearth of successful male-female bonding. Boy, I don't know if I can answer that. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. Uh, I'd have to think about that one myself. From the hip, I don't think I know. Um, I do, I am convinced as I look at the culture that if we don't get this fixed, and only we men can do it, 
If we don't get this somehow fixed, uh, we will not have a generation of men who can defend us. And those of us who are older tend to think about that. Um, if you read any of Ann Coulter, she went out and said in one uh, of her editorials, as she was writing to women, if you have some men who are doing this, you might thank them once in a while. Um, and don't be too hard on them. There are very few of these left. The ones who are just doing the normal fathering, it's magic to a son, just the normal. Uh, this isn't esoteric. This isn't uh, mysterious. It almost doesn't matter what you're doing together. It's like McDonald said, it wasn't what you did. It was that li your living self did breed in me. The sense that at the core of the universe is the Father, and he will come through on his promises. Um, and, and sons who see a little bit of this, this is very huge in our day. They need to see more of it. Um, I can't answer for the girls, but I can answer for the boys. And, and it's got to go the other way than the way it's gone. But it isn't, I'm not talking about something that takes years of planning and committees and all of that. It's simpler than that. My stories of my dad had to do with very simple things. Uh, could you tell the story of the of, of July 4th, uh, your dad and the, 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 what he allowed you to do on July the 4th? What, the fireworks? Yes. Yeah, we had a, he had bought a beach place out in Pu on Puget Sound there, and there was water on three sides of this beach place. And uh, he and some others would throw a 4th of July celebration uh, that was not Disneyland, but it was right up there. Um, and, and all of us young boys learned that explosives were fun. We, that was a very important thing for us to learn, that explosives were fun. Uh, the, the women were probably very nervous, but we didn't ask. Um, he, he, he had all sorts of things that went bang, and, and we boys thought we were in heaven. I told the story also the other day of he bought a farm. I guess I had said one time, what is that? And it was a water pump. He, coming from the farm, thought it was awful that a boy not know what a water pump was, so he bought a farm underneath Mount Rainier. And he hired a wino to take care of it, and he bought cattle so that we could see things born and didn't believe that meat came from a package, and uh, so we could learn to milk cows. And uh, one of the things he had up there at this farmhouse was a closet that was filled with ammunition of every caliber. Every caliber. Uh, there were shotgun shells of every gauge, um, clay pigeons till they went forever, hand traps to throw them, every revolver, semi-automatic revolver, every handgun, semi-automatic revolver, you name it, rifles up to 30-06. I brought boys up there to visit at the farm and they thought they'd gone to heaven. Their mothers thought they were going to die. Um, they didn't. My dad knew how to train somebody in gun safety. But the thing that's interesting about it, that when I tell it, the thing that interests me, is that every time we came back to that farmhouse, all those shelves were restocked. They were all restocked. We had come in and grabbed boxes of 22 shells and filled our pockets with them and gone and shot them all up and then come back and gotten more boxes. And when we came up two weeks later, everything was restocked. What does that teach you about the character of God? <laughs> he, first, of all, first of all, I think one of the things that I was learning in that was that I didn't have to be a girl, because I wasn't very good at that anyway. 
but that I had my father's blessing in something that really was fun and that I could bring other boys into it and for all I could tell it was free. I didn't have the brains to know this cost real money yet. Uh, but it was like it was free and, and a cornucopia that just kept putting out ammunition. I thought this was wonderful. And the boys, they really did. They thought they had died and gone to heaven too. Um, they had no idea of what that would be like to have that be okay. And here was a place where it all was okay. And that relates to the grace of God because... It's, it's the freedom of it all that, that we, there was no way that we pre had to pressure him into doing that. He went before us and knew that we needed that and provided it for us for free. Yes. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? Uh, um, before Billy asks ask that question, I want to ask, I'm going to take executive privilege here because I want to tease you out. <laughs> I hear you do that a lot. I do. Uh, in, people will often say, Rod, to me, that your doctrine of original sin is too negative and that you're always talking about people in disaster, paralyzed, difficult, and you make it, you make it, it's, there's a depressive character of your message. What, do people ever say such a thing to you, and how do you respond if they do? It's what the Bible says. Say more. Well, the, it, Christianity in the Reformation style starts very negatively. And, and we really believe that's grounded in the Pauline text. I was using Romans 3 the other day because I think it's the darkest section in all of the Bible, Romans 3, 9 through 20, which is just a string of Old Testament quotations, but it is dark. There's no hope in that thing. And Paul does that before he starts arguing from Abraham in chapter 4. And it gets better in chapter 5, but chapter 3... Uh, well, the, the Romans is set up very simply. Romans 1 is against the pagan who is going to say he thinks, if there's a judgment, look, you've got no case against us, we had no book. Jump on the Jews, they had the book. We were ignorant, you've got no case. So first of all, Paul levels the pagans, the Gentiles. Secondly, then he goes to the Jewish moralist who's been standing on the side, listening and saying, give it to them, they deserve it, they're dogs, you know, they're non-Jews, every lick of it, don't quit. Then he turns to his fellow Jews and says, oh, and you imagine that you'll be saved because you possess the oracles of God? It isn't possessing them that saves, it's obeying them, and you have not. Then in chapter 3, it's the whole world. And this is dark stuff. Now, the last part of chapter 3 just turns you catastrophically um, where something so good that it's unimaginable happens that into this darkness... We who don't even want to be saved, God saves anyway. We aren't interested in him, even. And, uh, and he acts to save us freely. Paul says in Galatians about the only way we can foul this thing up is to try and add to it. You know, Christ's finished work on the cross. He said it's finished, and we want to discuss that to see if we can add something back in. And in Galatians, it's one of the severest warnings in all of the New Testament. Don't try to add anything to this of yours. Do not do it. Um, Christ will be then of none effect to you. Um, but the, the darkness is necessary, the reformers believed, they, they thought it was soundly biblical, but the darkness was necessary so that the free gift would appear for what it was, utterly free. Yours, here, take. And part of what all those father stories are about is here, take, free, here, enjoy. 
Thank you. Billy Pritchard. Rod, I hate to ask you to do this again, but would you mind repeating the story you shared about your father and your car? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was uh, 16 in high school in Tacoma, and I belonged to a high school fraternity, um, which we thought was pretty hot stuff. And uh, the pledges one night didn't show up for the meeting. We knew that was planned that some night they would do this, and they would hide somewhere and leave notes throughout the city, and we would try to find them. Uh, there were five in my car, all drunk, and I had a 53 Buick cast off from my father, and it had a straight eight. That means the hood was really long. It was a dark night. I pulled very, 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 very slowly out of a blind corner, but the hood was so long that by the time I saw that Ford coming, there was nothing I could do. He hit me. My Buick collapsed on the street. He lost a headlight rim. I thought there was something wrong about that if I had a Buick. But anyway, my Buick collapsed on the street. I phoned my dad and I said, Dad, um, I, I've just been in a car wreck. He said, is everybody okay? I said, yeah, we're all drunk, but we're okay. He said, stay there. I'll, uh, I'll have it towed away and uh, just stay there. I'll come and get you. So he comes and picks up five drunks. And he delivers all those guys home, drives me back to our house, comes in, tells my mother to leave us alone. And we sit down on the on the. Uh, couch and he puts his arm around me and said, what are you feeling? And I said, I'm shaking, Dad. And he said, that's normal. That's shock. It's all right. He said, what else? And I, I was just sitting there blubbering. He said, you know what I think you need? I think you need a new car. Why don't you go looking and see what you can find? I'll, give me a call and I'll take lunch hour and we'll see what we can do. You need a new car. I mean, he could have grounded me till 2045. <laughs> and any jury of 12 men tried and true would have said he acted rightly. When things were the darkest, that's what happened. I will never forget those minutes, how ever. Did, how did it affect your faith? You said well, I didn't know at the time. Uh, I didn't know how, these, how interlinked those were. Uh, I was just living the life of a boy. Uh, so I didn't know. All, all I knew was that there were these surprise times that were too good to be true. Do you realize Spielberg, the Jew, gets this once in a while? Did you ever see Amazing Stories? There's one episode of that you, you should see when that wounded B-17 is limping home. Anybody see that one? Kevin Costner was in it. Tremendous episode. Uh, uh, like, like Memphis Bell shot up and limping home. And the guy in the belly turret is trapped there because something hit that belly turret so that it wouldn't open up and he couldn't get out of there. Then as they're starting to come in and, and put down the landing gear, only one of the landing gear comes down. He's going to die when that plane comes in. He's doomed. And the guys try everything. There are hand cranks for the other landing gear. They're trying all sorts of things. One guy passes a Colt 45 down to him if he wants to blow his brains out. Um, and they're, they're trying everything. He is, or was before the war, an artist. He asks for some paper and some pens. And he cartoons down in there, as the thing's limping in, he cartoons a B-17 flying fortress. And he cartoons it with one wheel down and the other one a kind of a cartoon big yellow balloonish tire on the other side. Just as that thing touches down, that wheel appears in reality. And the thing coasts to a halt 
smoke and everything coming out of it. They jump as fast as they can out of the thing, look back and are just amazed, and the thing blows sky high. It's gone. Where did Spielberg get that? He got it the same place that he got E.T. when those bikes took off. And every boy went, <gasps> if you can remember back that far. It was magic. It was absolutely magic. What Tolkien is saying here is that that's the way the universe really is going to turn out to be. The final trump card will be Christ's, and it will be his cross and his death, and death will be gone forever. The final trump card played. And we will have, all we will be able to do is to thank him because we ourselves weren't even interested that he would do it. I have the video, by the way, of the uh, Amazing Stories episode. I, I treasure it. Thank you so much for that. Now, uh, we have some time for some more questions or comments. Questions, ideally. Yes, Ashley. Congratulations. Hi, um, I just, I guess you had said that you couldn't really speak on behalf of women in father-daughter relationships, and I just wanted to offer that you know, the father-daughter relationship is just as important as the male-son, and I mean father-son, I'm sure you would agree, in that if a daughter knows her father approves and has that unconditional grace for her, she has that relationship with the Lord later, mm -hmm. realizing that that's how God looks at her, and mm -hmm. so, you know, that the father-daughter relationship mm -hmm. is so crucial, just as crucial as the father-son. Mm -hmm. I was telling earlier, thank you, I, I was telling earlier about a line I heard, uh, this fellow who's provided so much of this for me, he was so much like my dad, was a World War II fighter pilot. He was a P-51 pilot who flew wing for Chuck Yeager and uh, was one of the first in the, all of the clergy of America to have a PhD in clinical psych after his, his pastoral degree, way, way back when that was unknown. Um, but he was uh, one of the most famous flyers in World War II. And one time he said to me, I was talking about my daughter and I was fighting through something or other, and he said, let me give you a line that's even better than you telling your daughter you love her. I thought, what could that be? He said, tell Aaron that you know how much she loves you and you'll be giving her her freedom. She won't have to wonder about that inwardly anymore. That you already know. For what that's worth to you fathers of daughters, that was like magic. And you uh, were a father of a daughter, yeah. needless to say. Yeah. Um, now, uh, Roni, uh, uh, make it short and say it quickly. <laughs> I know, we'll do, I'll, I'll repeat it into the mic. How do you evangelize someone who's never had experience of having a good or present father? The reformers said it still is done. The power, the converting power of God is in the word of the gospel. And uh, it really is the same, we're called to do the same sort of thing, the law and the gospel. It's just that when somebody's had a father who's been generous and uh, not perfect, just generous and pays some attention to it, it's just easier. It's just easier. It doesn't mean it's impossible the other way, it's just tougher. Um, the image of God in us carries an idea of what it was supposed to be like. We just know that. Disappointing as it is that it wasn't, it's in there. And it is contactable by the Spirit of God through the word of the gospel. 
Thank you. Uh, one more question. Um, uh, you, uh, I'm going to ask it. Uh, you, you <laughs> of course about, you are. <laughs> you talked about, Rod, extremely fructifying things yesterday. You talked about substitution mm -hmm. and why uh, in the gospel a substitute is such an important personal theme. Could you say a little bit about the cross and substitution? If I'm at a cocktail party and somebody, because they know I'm some professor of religion somewhere, wants to talk religion, if we get into a conversation, and it could last just two minutes, three minutes, if it's going to be very short, I will try to illustrate from the culture the depth of sin. I'll probably reach for Golding's Lord of the Flies or the movie Seven or something like that that's particularly secular and particularly awful. But I don't want to stop there. I want to go from there to somehow talking about substitution because Christianity is about substitution. It's about the Lamb of God taking upon himself the sin of the world. Now, most people have been ruined to Christianity by Sunday school. Sunday school is an awesome task. Uh, if you're doing morals in there, don't. Get another curriculum where there's something going on about the promised Messiah and a free salvation uh, and junk the morals. Um, I will try to get to talking about Christ substituting for me and things are like uh, I was reading from Tolkien and from MacDonald. There's something that's going on that we don't suspect and is too good to be true. But this one is. I'll use Tolkien. I'll use anything I can to get across the great substitution that happened one afternoon such that I'm going to live forever. Uh, that's what I'll try to do. Christianity is about his substituting for us. Last question before I ask you to, to, to bless us, uh, before you get on your airplane. Do you have any words of counsel for Episcopalians currently? <laughs> or words of support? Yeah, uh, God, God bless you for what you're doing here in my heavenly days. Um, it's so nice to hear in an Episcopal church somebody talking about sin in Jesus. Uh, is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Yeah, what you have, uh, an outsider looks at, is a very, very lonely fight. Uh, but any church that isn't doing these themes, Luther would say, isn't isn't church. He'd say it's some kind of gathering. But if you don't have the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Jesus' blood alone, you aren't even a church. So I say to other people, you know, I can't do Willow Creek. It's against my ordination vows. I can't just choose anything as a Lutheran anyway. The ordination vows are, no matter what the cultural situation, you're going to do the law of God and you're going to do the marvelous grace of God in the cross of Christ, and that's what you're going to do as a pastor. And if you're not doing that, uh, you're not a pastor. Now, as near as I can figure out the National Episcopal Church, that doesn't exactly exemplify them. Uh, so it sounds like you've got a lonely fight to fight. Thank you for your uh, helpful words. No, but... <laughs> Sorry. No, no, nothing wrong with reality. Uh, we're going to uh, bid uh, Rod Rosenblatt adieu at this point. He's getting on an airplane to fly back to Orange County. <laughs> I do want to ask you to very seriously consider subscribing to Modern Reformation, which is the magazine that we together work on, uh, which is outstanding uh, magazine, which you can also find out about on the Internet. And if you do anything else in addition to listening to yesterday's tapes, listening to Rod and Mike Horton and co. on the radio Quite show called... 
called Inn. The White Horse Inn. Do you want to say anything about that show? Well, it, The White Horse Inn is a little little think tank of three Calvinists and one Lutheran uh, talking to American evangelicals and saying, you don't have to be in all that slosh. You just don't. There's better available. Huh? Uh, we're encouraging them to uh, consider a liturgical worship service. We're encouraging them to think. We're, we, we claim that if you think you're going to end up a believer, you know, if you're an agnostic, don't think because your agnosticism's in danger if you start thinking. Um, we're, we're saying to them that the greatest theological option since the death of the apostles is what was thought through so carefully in the 16th century by Luther and Calvin, and uh, especially me, but the others too, are saying, Wesley is not your answer. Sorry if you're in that, but... Why do you say that? Wesley, um, I have a, a friend at the college who says, Rome's theme was law. Luther's theme was law gospel. Wesley's theme is law gospel law you'll end up back in it again, you just didn't see it coming. You're in great shape with Wesley when you're a sinner being evangelized. It's all free. The place you're in trouble with Wesley is when you're a Christian. <coughs> really, we, we had one of our parishes put the, the ad on the White Horse Inn. At Redeemer Lutheran Church, we believe there's grace for Christians, too. As opposed to? Well, uh, Wesley's doctrine of Christian perfection. Well, all of a sudden you have him saying, now that you are a believer, before you die, you've got to achieve this Christian perfection. And people from the Reformation tear their hair out and say, where in the world are you getting that? And it's from about three passages done badly. But to the, to the evangelical, um, they will many times tell the story about when I first came to know the Lord and it was so wonderful. And then over the years, something happened and it's kind of gone. And I'm guiltier than I was before. Um, that's where Lutheran pietism put me and it felt better to leave the faith than to stay in it. Wesley can do that to you. Um, so we are really contending for a Reformation gospel of we are utterly lost and can't do anything about it and we have been utterly rescued and we will be there because Jesus died. We will enter heaven like in uh, the, what was that show about the baseball field out in the middle of Iowa? Field of, Field of Dreams. We will enter heaven the way Lancaster stepped out of that diamond. Remember when, he, when he, his cleats turned to wingtips as he stepped out? He was out of the thing and couldn't get back in. He went to rescue that girl in the stands. Remember the image when his cleats transformed into wingtips. That's how you and I will walk into heaven. We will go in as sinners from the very, to the very end, and Christ's blood will cover it. But it will be like that. Wesley's saying, if you think and haven't become holy and given it the fight, everything you've got in you, if you think the imputed righteousness will save you at the end, don't, uh, don't believe that for a minute. And at that point, I'm throwing Wesley's book against the wall because it's all I've got is the imputed righteousness. It's all I got. Rod, thank you for this extraordinary uh, 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 time that you've given us. And uh, would you just say a prayer to bless us as we now go to the next service and you go to the airplane? Sure. We pray. Heavenly Father, again, not as we ought, but as we're able, we give thanks and praise to you for the one-sided gift that it will always be enough. We give thanks to you for the gift of your Son given into death for our sin. We give thanks for his substitution 
And we ask you in your great goodness now to protect us with your holy angels that we be allowed to uh, praise you on another day, protect our families, grant wisdom to our leaders, for we ask all of this for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks.